Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Summer of 2019 is long over, and while the global cricket churn never ceases, the season of 2020 is already looming ominously into view. That's right folks, the 100 was officially launched this morning, and there wasn't much learned we didn't already know, that didn't stop Twitter going into meltdown. Here to help break down the launch, and the reaction, and the reaction to the reaction, and everything else that's happened this week, is Wisdom Cricket Monthly Magazine Editor, Joe Harmon. Hello Ben. And Crickwiz Analyst, and co-author of Cricket 2.0 Inside the T20 Revolution, Freddie Wild. Uh, thanks for having me. Freddie, what is your moment of the week? Uh, my moment of the week is the launch of the 100, as you just mentioned. Um, I was there this morning uh, in Brick Lane to see the eight team identities and kits be unveiled and uh, the announcement of uh, which players were going to which team. Um, and yeah, I mean, we, <laughs> we all know there's been a lot of controversy surrounding the, the launch of the, or the, the arrival of the 100, so to speak. And today was the first day we've sort of had an official uh, a launch of sorts. We had the logo that sort of was uh, released into the Twitter sphere a few months ago, but today was sort of mark- marking the beginning, so to speak, and, and um, with the team identities and the players being allocated, I think you, know, you can see the tournament itself beginning to take shape. Um, and as someone who is a big fan of short-form cricket, I can't wait for the 100 to come along, and it, you know, it was exciting to be there and, and, and see that happen. Yeah, I mean, it was always going to be Brick Lane, wasn't it? Uh... <laughs> it wasn't going to be Lords. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, I guess, I guess it's almost... Uh, in a way, do you think if they learned a few lessons PR-wise, this this was in a way like a, a smaller launch than you might get for a lot of other competitions, and maybe they're kind of trying to sort of get it back slowly in a way and do go go small and then go big on the draft once they've sort of got got it kind of more in order in a way. I don't know. Yeah, well, there's been a sort of you know the, 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 we've heard a lot about the hundred through through things that have been you know, spilt out to the media and, and press releases here and there. And as I said, there hasn't really sort of been a, a full-on launch. And you're right, today wasn't a, a big thing, but it was the first sort of um, event, so to speak, that was marking it, um, and yeah, no, it, it was it was good to be there, and I think there was a, there was a lot of excitement in the room about what's happening. Freddie, do, do you think English cricket needed this? Needs it? I think it needs a new tournament. Yeah, without a doubt. I've long been an advocate of um, moving the what, well the T Twenty Blast to a to a city based smaller. TV-friendly competition. Um, obviously, now we've we've ended up with the T20 Blast and the 100. Um, whether that or the two competitions can coexist, we'll have to wait and see. But I absolutely think it, English cricket needs a new tournament of something like this, whether it be 100 balls, 120 balls, I'm not really fussed. Um, but I think a rebranding of the game and trying to take it to a new audience is entirely necessary. It's got a long, long way to go to uh, persuade a lot of people out there. To some of them will never be persuaded, yeah. uh, however the tournament goes, I think. But... Yesterday, Wisdom.com posted a piece on on the players who are going to be available in the draft. Steve Smith, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Big, big names. Quite exciting stuff. Uh, and we received fifty-seven replies to that tweet. Fifty-six of them uh, were strongly against the hundred. Some of which uh, quite quite abusively. Uh, one was in favour. Uh, and obviously, the people who 
aren't in favour of it are probably more likely to reply than those who are, I would say, probably just because the strength of feeling. But it does, it's just, it was just a reminder if we needed it that the ECB have still got a, an uphill battle to persuade a huge chunk of cricket fans that this is something that they should get on board with. Well, it's, it's also it's such an easy thing to kind of unite against in a way, even though I think a lot of people dislike it for different reasons. Like some people really dislike the format and think it's not cricket at all, whereas other people don't mind the format, but it's the city basing that they get behind and that could kill county cricket and they're, they're not, yeah. So I think there's like, there's so many things people are against and some people would be almost fine with 100 if it was T20 cricket and they feel like they're on the same side as people who don't mind the format but think it will kill county cricket. It's such a, like a, yeah, I can't quite, quite work out why people sort of do dislike it so much and can't. Well, I do, I do understand why. There's the genuine fear of, of, of the fabric of county cricket being, being torn apart by this and it being the first stage in that process. And I, I completely understand that I'm, I'm slightly more on the fence. I don't think we needed something as, as uh, drastic as the 100. I would have liked to see uh, the existing T20 Blast reworked into a, a top division and a, and a second division. I think we didn't give that a strong enough go. I yeah, think I see that, yeah. perhaps the 100 had to come at some stage but I don't think we'd got to the, to the stage where we we have enough evidence to show people evidence being crucial here as well because a lot of people are upset that they haven't seen the evidence from the ECB that this is this is necessary yeah I guess for me it's, it's more just the the uh the sentiment against absolutely everything involved because that list of players is a really really strong one of the OCs yeah. players there's nine of the like the top 10 T20 international captains are going to be in the draft and probably playing in the 100 next year which is which is huge I can't that can't have ever happened in in English in the T20 Blast at any point um, but people will still be saying oh these are all like that, that, they'll almost like willfully disregard the facts being like there's a bunch of just like nobodies like money grabbers kind of thing mm. uh, just just because Virat Kohli's not in it essentially yeah, I think so. and Joe said that the ECB have gone an uphill battle to sort of convince a lot of fans about it and I think they do but I think one thing that will happen is I think when it actually starts it the things will change quite quickly in my opinion mm. I think you know one thing we can be sure of is that the 100 will be the highest standard of domestic cricket ever seen in England that is you know there is a fact there are going to be eight teams a lot of players condensed down into only eight teams where we've normally had 18 three overseas players as you said the names are huge names from around the world the standard of cricket has never been higher than what we will see in the 100 and I think that Ultimately, cricket fans like cricket, and whether you say 100 balls, 120 balls, is, is it, you know, it is still the same sport. You know, it, it's, it's 22 guys on a field with six stumps, batting a ball, and they'll play, and it will be good quality cricket. And I think that that will be the moment when people begin to sit up and think, actually, hang on, this is this is good fun, and I can get behind it. I, I think that's true. I think a, a large chunk of people will also, will come back to it, but I think the ECB is still really paying the price for mistakes they made at the start. The, obviously, the infamous line that this isn't for the established cricket fans, this is for a new audience. That was the one, noticing the replies to the tweet I mentioned, that was the one that kept coming back. So it was, what do, I think the question of our tweet was, what do people make of the 100 draft? The, the kind of, the stable, stable response was, well, why are you asking me? It's not for me, which, which, is a, which is an easy thing to say. And I can understand why people are saying it, because it was a... a a massive misjudgment on the part of the ECB to use that kind of language and I think they are going to continue to pay the price for it for, for a while yet. Yeah. yeah, okay. Well, let, let's talk about the launch in a bit more detail and the stuff we did learn. First of all, the uh, the kits, all with uh, their own uh, KP branded sponsor, a different a different flavour of crisps on each one. Uh, which, which is your favourite? I'm a Manchester Originals man. Is that uh, the McCoys? The yeah, the McCoys, sort of a dark dark blackish it's New classy, Zealand style. Yeah, yeah, I think there's, and, and the London Spirit as well, I've got a classy blue kit. 
Um, there are a few who have gone for some louder ones, which I'm not so much a fan of. But yeah, no, the, <laughs> good fun. It's always going to provoke a lot of debate with this kind of thing. Yeah, Joe, you're a McCoy's man in general and in this case. Well, this is it. I'm not sure about how much I'm led by the fact I really like McCoy's, but it, that was definitely the one that, that jumped out for me. Uh, so yeah. It's going to be great because you're going to get away kits in different flavours of McCoy's. You could have a sort of roast beef McCoy's away and like a, a Thai sweet chicken sure. at home. It'd be great, yeah. I'm, I'm all in on the skips, but for me, the, the biggest miss opportunity of the 100... Uh, in its entirety, is that there's no Space Raider sponsored kit. I think that would be a great team name. Would be the. Do you think that would finally that would be the thing that well, finally won people over? Well, would de- be the de- <laughs> definitely the kids, right? There's nothing more school disco than a, a packet of Space well, Raiders. I think the kids might have moved on a bit since then. But <laughs> <laughs> the Southern Brave have got a nice green kit, which would work really well with the Space Invaders logo. I think that yeah, there's a missed trick there. I did see someone tweet: Is is Joffrey Archer going to seem slight? It's intimidating when he's running in with Pom Bear written, <laughs> on, written on his shirt. But uh, okay, and the, the the selections themselves. I guess this is maybe more for for Freddie. I guess there's not not a huge amount of surprise. Teams have mostly picked the and in a way the best critting option rather than like maybe the most eye catching local name, which shows how seriously they're taking it from a, a cricket point of view. Yeah, the, yeah, I think most of the picks were as expected. I think the couple stood out. Dan Lawrence uh, going to London Spirit was a little bit of a surprise. Um, uh, I'm not sure many people saw that one coming. Um, and I think, and interesting, the, the price brackets were interesting too. I think Pat Brown at 60k is, is a steal. Um, we've seen Pat Brown across two seasons of the Blast now be extremely successful. So he's been named in England's T20 squad for New Zealand. Um, and uh, Birmingham picked him up at 60k, whereas someone like Tom Banton, who's gone to Welsh Fire, he's just had one season in the Blast, in arguably an easier role opening the batting, and he's gone for 100k. Um, I don't know whether you know various agents are, are pulling different strings and more effectively than others, but um, yeah, the, the discrepancy in, in price between those two was quite interesting. Yeah, I was surprised also that uh, Welsh Fire went for Colin Ingram over Lewis Gregory. I think that uh, Lewis Gregory just seems like a, a brilliant short-form cricketer, and also almost the most suited to the 100 and that he's like such a quick scorer whereas Colin Ingram's in a way more of a like an, an old style T20 batsman where like he'll kind of bat through and get you maybe 85 off off 50 or 60. Yeah. How much do you think the, the the Welsh fire is a factor there though that do you feel as a local icon you've got to have some well <laughs> <laughs> alright I take, I take your point but yeah but a Glamorgan, Glamorgan, a Glamorgan player yeah yeah, yeah. yeah oh, perhaps yeah I mean I wonder if that was a consideration is trying to get players from two, you know, the two of the catchment counties um, you know and also I suppose Ingram as a, as a cold pack player who's then therefore eligible as a local player someone who's sort of um, succeeded and played around the world in a way that Gregory hasn't Gregory's a player on the rise and I agree I, I probably would have gone for Gregory in that situation as well but um, I can understand going for Ingram too You've written about what the 100 cricket is going to look like so I guess, I guess well the way to ask it is Freddie, you're the author of Cricket 2.0. Is the 100 going to be Cricket 3.0 or Cricket 2.1, do you think? <laughs> yeah, well, Cricket 1.0. Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure. But yeah, it, it will be interesting to see how it differs to T20. I think it will be quite a subtle difference. Um, we've seen T10, um, which is half the length of T20, and that's significantly different, I would say. I think there's a, a, a far greater emphasis on attacking batting, even more so than there is in T20, whereas I think the shift in a 100 ball will be slightly more subtle. Um, but the game will be different, and obviously the, the the added factor of the you know potentially bowling ten balls in a row um, from one bowler, um, and, and and in fact because you can do that, you can bowl twenty of twenty five balls yeah, can be really bowled me. by so by one player. David Willey could do the whole power play by himself, yeah, for or, example. or Harry Gurney could do yeah. most of the death by himself as well. So you know that those those things will be interesting. Um, so I think yeah, there'll be subtle changes, but I think it will be strate- It's adding a new strategic dimension, which is um, for someone like myself who'd be involved in sort of the tactical and strategic side of it. That's that's really interesting as well. It, it must have been a challenge to put together this book just by the very nature of the short format and how quickly it changes. So, so when, when did you start 
putting it together? Um, we started just over a year ago now. Um, I think myself and Tim have wanted to write it for, for quite a long time. This is Tim Wigmore. Um, have we said that yet? I don't think we have. No, I said you were a co-author, but I, I admitted <laughs> I his take, name. Take so, all the credit. So, sorry, <laughs> Tim. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've wanted to write it for a long time and we've sort of finally got around to it last year. Um, but yeah, no, you're right. There's sort of constantly evolving nature of of T20. Well, we, we found ourselves referring to T20 and then sort of at times saying short form cricket um, because obviously there are various um, types of, of short form cricket now. Um, but no, yeah, we've, it's always something we've wanted to write. Tim and I have followed T20 cricket particularly closely um, and yeah, it was it was great to sort of, well, I think we, we ended up writing it really because we were trying to find a book that told us the story of T20 cricket and we realised there wasn't one out there. So. Mm. We thought well, maybe we could do it, and we have. And you guys, and to your credit, you and Tim particularly have been right at the kind of front of that um, sort of new breed of cricket journalist who perhaps some of the older guard didn't necessarily take T20 that seriously at the start. Yeah. Um, and you did you get into it primarily as a fan because you just really enjoyed it, or did you see a niche in the market from a journalistic point it's of view? It's a bit of both. I remember when T20 started way back in 2003-04 when I was just a kid at school. It was just great fun immediately, and suddenly all of my mates were taking an interest in cricket in a way that they didn't before because T20 was so much more accessible. So from that perspective as a fan, I've always sort of enjoyed it, and I loved. I remember loving the original IPL and the sort of the fun of players, you know, building your dream team. Um, but then, yeah, I think also you recognise as well that not many sections of the media take T20 cricket seriously. We're seeing exactly the same thing with the 100 now. Um, and I expect that will change uh, because the 100 will probably be popular and people will get behind it and soon we'll have you know, more journalists writing about it seriously. Um, but yeah, it was definitely that sort of the motivation came from the fact that not many people do understand or get under the bonnet of T20 mm. and how it's played. And so Tim and I thought that we would and involved us talking to a lot of people and we conducted 80 interviews, or more than 80 interviews for the book because, as I said, we were looking for sort of literature on the game and realised there wasn't any, so the, we had to go to the players themselves to, to explain how it's played, really. Yeah, and the book is, because, I mean, if people are familiar with yours and Tim's writing, it tends to be kind of data-driven, and there's a lot of that in the book, but it's also the story from the start to finish, right? You, you can kind of get the whole narrative of how the format's evolved. Yeah, well. well, we were keen, I, mean, I think we are very keen to sort of um, tell the story of the individuals involved, because I think we've had, well, 15-plus years of T20 now, and there are some clear characters who have emerged. Brendan McCullum, Chris Gale, Kyron Pollard was a particularly fascinating interview in the book. Um, Sunil Narine, Samuel Badri, Rashid Khan. These are individuals who, in their own right, have got fascinating stories. And I think you sort of, in T20, we're probably a little bit guilty of like dehumanising these guys because they just go around the world playing for team after team after team. And it's quite hard to sort of maybe understand them from a human side. And you know, Pollard being you know, one who was, a, you know, he grew up on a council estate in Trinidad and was became a millionaire overnight when he won the Stanford 2020 game in 2008 mm. and then played a fantastic innings for Trinidad and Tobago in the Champions League and a few months later was bought for 750k in the IPL and he's played for Mumbai Indians ever since and you know, he, 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 he's really <laughs> sort of uh, candid in saying how grateful he is for the T20 format because without it he would have had a, a very different life and I think that that's the case for a lot of these guys and, and T20's created some really interesting human stories as well as as you said from the sort of data side of how the game is played. I thought it was interesting to see Pollard being named West Indies white ball skipper the other day because yeah. there is perhaps unfairly a view of him with a few other, other players of his ilk as a bit of a mercenary who's perhaps not that fussed about playing for the West Indies and that's particularly a problem or perceived problem in that in that region so for him to be given that role kind of seems to debunk that myth yeah 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 and I mean it, the T20 World Cup is, is next year in Australia it would be an amazing story if, if Pollard was to take the West Indies to, to win that after I mean like people talk about Gale as being the, sort of the original freelancer but actually Gale had a 
quite substantial international career before he mm. played T20 cricket, and that wasn't the case for Pollard. Pollard, I think, had played three or four international matches when Mumbai bought him for 750k at the, at the 2010 auction, I think. Um, and you know, he, 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 in a way, was the original guy who sort of went and said, you know what, I'm without international cricket. I'm going to go and make my career in T20 cricket, domestic cricket around the world. And he has then also had a significant career for the West Indies. People forget that. He's played over 100 matches at T20 and ODIs for, for the West Indies. Um, and now, yeah, leading his country. It would be a fantastic story if he was to take them to the title next year. Staying on the subject of candid interviews, uh, Joe, what, what's your moment of the week? Uh, so my moment of the week was just this morning. I spoke to England's next test opener, Dom Sibley. Well, almost certainly, unless Zach Crawley leapfrogs him, but I think that's unlikely. Yeah, which was an interesting interview. I, he was, um, he's obviously, he, he can't wait to get going, get out to New Zealand. Um, all of that stuff, that, that was interesting to a point, but I thought it was the, the start of his career, which I was most interested by. And he, he famously scored a double century in just his third first-class match, I think it was, in 2013. And then, as as happens with some young players, he had a had a bit of a slump, and then um, a kind of fallout at Surrey when he left Warwickshire, and Surrey put out a, a press release, um, which they might look back on with a bit of regret, I think, and that they kind of I thought they painted him in, in a not particularly good picture, implied that he'd gone to Warwickshire because he was promised first team cricket in the top order, which which he said was not not the case at all. Um, he says that he basically he, he wasn't looking for assurances but he did want to be seen as a top order batsman and, and Surrey had just got Stoneman and Borthwick and he'd been batting at number five already so he thought well if I'm going to open the batting it's probably not going to be here so he moved on to Warwickshire and whatever anyone thought about that decision at the time it's been thoroughly vindicated since uh, and he's been the form opener in county cricket by uh, an incredible margin this year really um astonishing average racking up hundreds racking up big hundreds batting for long periods of time all the things that you want in a in a test opener so now it just remains to be seen whether he can do it or not yeah i guess the, the, the i mean the thing with him is that a lot I, I, well i guess there's two things a lot of people will be backing him for selection without having seen a great deal of him play and then the people who have seen him play said that he's got at least an unusual technique but he, he sort of that I mean that's kind of by design it's not like he's accidentally got this technique and it's kind of figuring out a way to make it work this is how he thinks he's kind of best at batting if that makes sense yeah and I think that the technique has changed that's quite interesting in itself I mean Ashley Giles who's obviously, who was obviously his coach at Warwickshire before he took the ECB job uh, said said himself that Sibley's not the prettiest on the eye but then well we know Steve Smith is not necessarily well, it depends what you find pretty but is not necessarily uh, the prettiest on the eye Rory Burns you could say the, the same of um, so it's not a bad time to be coming in playing ugly cricket. I think people have more respect for ugly batsmen than they might have done in in previous years if they can if they can stick around for a long time. And on his on his technique, there's been quite a lot of talk about him working with Gary Palmer, the freelance batting coach who's worked with Alistair Cook and I think Ian Bell in the past. Uh, and simply did say he's he's been a big part of his uh, kind of resurgence, but. He said actually it was Jonathan Trott who picked out a kind of potential technical weakness, which was the kind of which set the tone for this this change of form that we've seen. He said he thought for for a big guy he was quite narrow in his stance, uh, and and basically he was kind of falling over quite a lot. So when um, Sibley went away and had to think about it, and and then started to have a bit of a wider stance, uh, a bit more front on. So he said if he is falling over, he's kind of falling down the pitch which he said is it was not such an issue and he said from that moment on he hasn't really looked back um, and it's it, he had he couldn't have been any more full of praise for for Ian Bell and Trot at Warwickshire and, and how much they've helped him behind the scenes and he says he'll still go back to those two guys when he does start playing for England as, as 
uh, sources of inspiration and advice, and particularly someone like Trot, who's obviously experienced pretty much all you can in international cricket, both the highs and the, and the incredible uh, kind of tragic lows to to an extent. Um, and he's got some yeah, he's got some good people to talk to there. Freddie, what, when you put Sibley's name through the the Crickviz machine, uh, does it does it does he come out as a successful Test match opener? <laughs> That's how it works, isn't it? Is that we can't say it with such confidence. But, um, <laughs> no, I mean, well, as you said, he's had a fantastic season this year, and he's you know, in, in that respect, he's, he's earned his spot on the tour. Um, I think the thing for me about Sibley, or for any guy coming out of county cricket with the body of work that he's had, which is one very good season and a few years of promise, is realistic expectations. I think we've seen, in particularly in England, and England are going to two difficult places to bat in New Zealand and South Africa next. Open, well, batting in Test cricket is exceptionally difficult right now for a number of reasons, conditions being one, a fantastic crop of bowlers being another. And I think we have to adjust our expectations as to what a successful Test match opener looks like these days. Um, you know, Alistair Cook averaged in, in, in the 40s um, and you know, he was a, a legendary player. Um, but nowadays, an average in you know, the high 20s, low 30s is is, is probably pretty serviceable. I think also what's important really is how many balls you can face. Yeah. Um, it's the blunting of the new ball. If you can bat for 60, 70 balls and you're essentially getting, you know, you, you're, you're taking your team, you know, maybe one down at lunch, you, you've done your job really in a way, especially in England's team, which as we know, is full of dynamic middle order players. If, if the guys who are opening the batting can just simply see off the new ball, almost how many runs they score is not take, maybe, maybe as important. They then lay the platform for, you know, Root, Butler, Stokes to come in and, and, and capitalise against a softer ball and a slightly tiring attack. So, yeah, I think for me, that's the thing. I think he, you know, I've, I've not seen much of him, as you know, as I said, I mean, people have talked a little bit about his technique, but for me, uh, uh, you know, as you said, Steve Smith, Shivan Ryan Chandapal, Graham Smith, Alistair Cook—these guys who just don't look, you know, particularly elegant—have scored, you know, tens of thousands of runs. So I think I'd be wary of commenting too much on that. But I think, um, yeah, let's have some realistic expectations. But he's he's earned his place, and I wish him all the best in New Zealand. A nice little side story as well, which I meant to mention. So um, Dom Sibley played, made his second team debut opening the batting with Rory Burns. Made his first class debut opening the batting with Rory Burns. He's going to Rory Burns' wedding this, this weekend and will likely be opening the batting with him in, on test debut in New Zealand, uh, which, is, which is a nice little side story. And also he said uh, he, he, just, he was incredibly proud of what Burns has done this summer in the most testing circumstances you can possibly imagine as an, as an opening batsman. Uh, he described, he was, I think he said it was at Trent Bridge playing a T20 for Warwickshire, oh, sorry, Birmingham Bears. Um, <laughs> And Burns was on 98 or 99 and he was meant to be going out to train before the start of the match and he just couldn't couldn't leave the TV because he wanted to see Burns Burns get there. He was on 99 for a while. Yeah, he was, wasn't he? He was, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, he, he just said he couldn't have been prouder of his mate. And yeah, as, as I say, we'll most likely be seeing the mate in the batting for the first test in New Zealand and hopefully for a, for a little while longer than that. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, just quickly to jump in, I mean, I think patience is key with these guys as well. I think, you know, he's got two tests in New Zealand, four in South Africa, he, he should have all of them. He should be given all of those test matches, yeah. even even if you're really struggling. I think you, you you know it takes, as I said, opening batting in test cricket is hard, and give a guy an op- you know, a decent opportunity, probably beyond. You're probably looking into Sri Lanka as well, really, um, and, and hopefully he can establish himself in that time. So, do you think? I mean, England didn't give uh, Jason Roy that. Do you think he deserved deserved more at the top? I think yeah. Well, Roy is the one. Roy is slightly different in that Roy has 
uh, not open in well hasn't been a sort of proven open in county cricket, and it was a bit, almost a bit of a rogue experimental move. It's essentially done so well in the World Cup. They liked the way that he played, and you know it almost they tried so many play, traditional openers. Let's try someone else who takes the attack to the to the new ball. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't have been I wouldn't have not liked it if Roy had um, been given more time. Um, but I can understand. The, the nature of his selection, I can sort of understand why they've, they've moved on from him as quickly as they have, I suppose. Yeah. This this leads neatly onto a, a new feature we're launching in the Wizard Cricket Weekly podcast, which is a read of the week. And uh, this week it's a confessions of an England or English opener? Of an England opener. Confessions of an England opener. Either could work, though. Yeah. In, a, in, in the current issue of uh, Wizard Cricket Monthly, written by Joe Harmon, who's here. Joe, do you want to talk us through the piece itself and then we can... Uh, yeah, so it, do, it does feed into a lot of what we've just been talking about. So I wanted to, it was actually just before Jason Roy started opening the batting um, in the Ashes. So he'd, he'd played against Ireland, but it was before the Ashes started. Uh, and obviously he was the, the next to have a go at trying to make this thing work. And, and it's been clear how difficult a job it is. And I just wanted to find out more about what makes it so difficult, whether it's the technical issues, the mental issues, the scrutiny you're under as a, as a test cricketer. Uh, so I spoke to Michael Carberry, Sam Robson and, and Adam Lythe uh, about their own experiences of, of Test cricket, and each of them didn't have very long in the Test arena. Carberry Bot played the 2013 14 Ashes mm-hmm. and had a couple of tests. One before test that. before that in Bangladesh. Uh, then actually, it was Sam Robson that took over for that 2014 summer. Mm-hmm. He played against Sri Lanka in India and then was dropped. Then there was a sort of weird bit where Moen opened the batting briefly, Trot did it in West Indies, and then Lythe opened the batting the following summer uh, against New Zealand, where he scored 100 at Headingley, uh, and then had a miserable Ashes and was and was dropped. Uh, they have different takes on it. Carberry uh, is the most animated. It's perhaps easier because he's no longer in the game. I mean, he 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 says some of the people who are selecting the team are just idiots. That that's that's a, a direct quote from from him, and he certainly feels hard done by. He was told that age counted against him when he was dropped after the Ashes, and he said, "Well, I was, I was, I was young enough four months ago." And he did relatively well in that series, faced more balls than anyone apart from Australia's openers, which is a pretty decent effort in in such a horrendous series for for England. Uh, so he he thinks he was he was livid about the Jason Roy selection. Not because he's got anything against Jason Roy, but he thinks it showed disrespect to the role of what opening the batting is, particularly in England, that it's a specialist role and needs to be respected as such. Now, two weeks later, Roy's out of the team and, and Carberry looks like he's he's probably hit the nail on the head on, on that one. Robson and Lythe spoke... Um, well, they were, I think they both appreciated... I, thought, I think Sam Robson was quite unlucky to be dropped when he was. He thought it was fair enough, actually... Um, and Adam Live again said after that Ashes he could completely understand why he was dropped. But they both did say these guys need to be given more time, as Freddie's saying, to bed into that position and have expectations that are reasonable, uh, particularly when playing over here when the ball was doing doing all sorts. Um, and you know they're, they're both they're both hopeful of getting another shot. I mean they're young enough to do just about. Um, if they have a season like Sibley did, with more seasons behind them uh, than Sibley has, then you never know. They might they might get back in there. Yeah, the two things for me reading it, uh, what one was that the scrutiny, as you say, which they was especially Robson and Lyde both said that that was what they just had an experience for, and that was the biggest step up was just in how every failure was sort of examined. And after four tests, four failures, you're getting a like a your, your techniques being picked apart. And especially, I mean, if you're opening the batting, which is already you're going to like just fail a lot just because of the nature of the job, and then you're also having that extra scrutiny on top of that. It's it's basically just like a 
like there's almost no way you can <laughs> unless you're like incredibly mentally resilient that you can come through that without having your your confidence shot in a way and the other thing was actually just the, the sidebar which had all the england openers and their test averages and i think it's so easy to look back on this whole era of opening the batting in england and see like everyone tried as having kind of failed in the same way and to the same sort of degree but that's actually it's not the case and it's, it is interesting to like kind of think back and think who was harshly treated who was fair enough who could have got more of a go yeah so it. robson averaged 30.54 from more, more than what Rory burns average at the moment in test cricket yeah from seven matches and got a century in his in his second test 15 is third is that right at trent bridge uh yes i think that i think that is right yeah uh, you know, we'd take that now, wouldn't we? Yeah. We'd have certainly taken that and this especially summer. England won by an innings the last two or three games, so we didn't get many chances. No, to I, I think yeah, I think he only had ten innings, possibly or eleven or twelve innings. But yeah, so yeah, I think our expectations have hopefully shifted a little well, that's bit. The thing, I think maybe Robson was unlucky because he he almost came in at the beginning of this era now, where ball has dominated bat to such an extent, and I think people now accept, as we said earlier, that the expectations need to be adjusted. If Robson was to come in, and let's say he had hits the summer he had back then, now I think he'd probably be on the plane to New Zealand um, because I think people understand that opening the batting is more difficult. Whereas back then it was sort of the end of the era when bat dominated ball, and we've, you know, the game has now since changed. Um, so I guess he was a bit unfortunate in that respect. Yeah. Well, speaking of how hard it is to open the batting in Test cricket, uh, India have put on 300 for, <laughs> for the first week against Alaska in a, in a test in Bizag, uh, where Rohit Sharma has scored 170 in his uh, in his first innings opening batting in Test cricket. Maybe England should try promoting their white ball opener to, <laughs> to, to open the batting. That could be an idea. And, and Agarwal with 200 as well. So yeah, they, they yeah just proving us wrong there but I think I mean I think the thing there is that you know probably of all the places to open the batting Asia generally and, and probably India is the easiest or certainly in the first two innings of the match by the time it's the second innings you're going to be facing Ashwin and Jadeja on a turning on a pitch that's turning square but but then it's as hard to open as it is to bat anywhere else exactly well, yeah, yeah. Very, yeah well said so no I think you know we've, we've seen their openers succeeding and, and I think that that probably shows the difference in conditions around the world it's part of what makes cricket so interesting he's gonna have guys who can you know dominate in certain conditions and struggle elsewhere, I guess. Do you think this is a? Do you think it will work in the long term? Having Rohit Sharma as a, a test opener, I, I mean, he's a player of such quality. I wouldn't want to write him off, but I would if I'm if I was having to say what either way, I'd say I don't think it will work. I think we've seen Roy and Finch, um, two players who've done well in white ball, moved up to open in test cricket, and generally they've struggled. And actually, someone like Bairstow as well, who's opened in white ball, is struggles down the order in test cricket. And I think fundamentally they. The, the two formats are becoming so different that's red and white ball cricket that the techniques required are increasingly different we've seen Bairstow move more leg side of the ball which has opened up access to the offside in, in white ball cricket but therefore makes him vulnerable to being bowled in, in test cricket and I think that basically encapsulates the problem facing players um, that only the very best can find techniques to survive in both uh, I'd love to see Rohit succeed because god he's good to watch isn't he it does seem that his technique is one thing it does seem his temperament is now better suited to be a test opener I mean the way he he constructs a one-day innings. He, he doesn't usually get off to a flyer. Yeah. Um, he seems to be perfectly in control of of the tempo of his innings. So, so that is sort of a tick in the tick in the box of a Test opener. Um, but yeah, I seem to remember saying similar things about Jason Roy and being a Test opener, and, <laughs> and then that. Yeah, the other thing for me as well is that like it, we kind of have rose-tinted views of how we look at some white ball players who succeeded in Test cricket. So I guess the two examples for me are David Warner and Brenda Sawag, who are both obviously terrific Test opening batsmen but have one Test 100 between them in England and Sawag averaged 27 here. And that's almost the model that India were looking to when they picked Sharma. And I know they're very different one-day players as well, but even if you're like a good opener in some places, I think especially if you're a one-day solo opener, that's going to be 
like in England, you're just going to really struggle unless you're like just trying to uh, stick at your wicket, essentially. Well, and also, I think as well, we've say why well, it's basically the 21st century openers we've had two you've named two there who have managed exactly. to do it yeah. they are legends of the game I think Sawag is one yeah. of the is a phenomenal player a hugely significant player in cricket history generally actually and the way that he changed batting essentially um, but you know it's it's very difficult to do what those guys have done and even you know, Warner you know, who knows Warner Warner who knows what will happen to Warner well, those two are quite interesting examples because Sawag just continued to play his way whatever the format, whatever the situation, whereas Warner has actually changed a hell of a lot since the, yeah. since the guy that first came through and played a T20. Did he play a T20 international before playing a first-class match? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, he, he's kind of, he's had to evolve, uh, whereas Sarag was was a kind of law unto himself, really, wasn't he? In the, in the best way possible. Yeah, yeah I think it'll be fascinating to see what Warner does next and how his how he tries to evolve his technique. Because I think he... Is it, will he just about be around... At the next Ash series in England, well, I mean, he, the thing with Warner, he could be, but I mean, it, uh, there's a, there's a sort of a storyline here where Warner struggle. If, if Warner struggles in the home summer in Australia, which I don't think he will do against a Kookaburra ball on flatter tracks, you know, I could see him getting a hundred in in Brisbane before lunch. <laughs> but but he could also, if he was to have a, a, a barren spell, it also it's not that inconceivable to see Warner sacking it in and, and moving to, to just playing T20 cricket that could happen mm. but alternatively he could you know and I think this is more likely I think he will he will come back and I think he yeah, he, could, he could still play for three four years at, at test level and just interesting to see how he tries to adapt his technique to and his temperament I guess to survive in, in conditions yeah, where he hasn't succeeded so far we saw in England he was so scrappy you know, that he made so, such extreme changes to his technique mm. and was changing it innings to innings and batting metres out of his crease and moving across completely to lost his off stump didn't he yeah, was, and then the, the last test of the overs summed up he just Look completely sharp there, didn't he? So it will be yeah, it will be fascinating to see how Warner d- goes this winter. I think they've got Pakistan first up, um, and you'd, you'd fancy him to get some runs in some easier conditions, but we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, okay. Uh, so a bit of other international cricket this week. We've seen a men's ODI cricket return to Karachi after a ten-year absence in slightly comical circumstances. The um, the, the first scheduled ODI to play there uh, was entirely rained off, and if you look at the pictures, there were like like. Like almost floods outside the stadium, and it was the first ever rained off game they've had in Karachi in its entire history, which is quite. quite that's quite, unfortunate, quite isn't, it? isn't it? <laughs> really, that's quite unfortunate. But you know, it was better. Better the was it a couple of days later? Well, it was it was more days later than it should have been because the rain was so bad that they had to also reschedule the second ODI to be played a day later so they could have more time to clean it up. But yeah, then Babar Azam, who's the uh, the crown prince of. The Pakistani batting. Got so at this point, we have to insert 15 minutes from Phil Walker on <laughs> Babar Azam. <laughs> yeah, if you, if you just imagine he's done that, and then we'll carry on. Uh, but yeah, he, he got 100. It was a, a, a reasonably exciting series, actually, for a, a Sri Lanka team where a lot of the players hadn't travelled. Uh, and uh, yeah, but Pakistan won that 2-0. So, but I guess the, the best thing is that there's just little incident apart from the rain. And, uh, and yeah, uh, well, a hugely significant series and, and um, brilliant. And yeah, Wazim Khan's done a fantastic job to to get cricket back to Pakistan, which was his is kind of one of his number one priorities. And and yeah, it's fantastic to see that. Yeah, in in other rain related news, there was a, there's a T Twenty I going and actually at the moment between India women and Africa, which wasn't in the schedule until yesterday. There's been so much rain, and it happened. Uh, the, it was announced after the fourth game that there was going to be a series when India were 2-0 up in the series. So everyone said India won the series and now there's two games left to play and all of a sudden South Africa could, could draw it, which would be great. Some a pragmatic lot. scheduling. How long will this carry on going for? Like, <laughs> yeah, best of five, best of seven. <laughs> best of <nine. laughs> yeah, that's true. Is, is it just South Africa desperately trying to, uh, to maintain a record? Ben, we haven't had your moment of the week, have we? Oh, or is, that, are you that, coming that, to that? That's true, yeah. I've, uh, I, I do have one. It's, uh, it's Chamari Atapatu's uh, 
113 against uh, against Australia. I guess I mean in that series there are a lot of brilliant efforts. Beth Mooney got 100. Lisa Healy broke the world record for the uh, in women's cricket for the highest T20I score. It was a 148, and a terrific knock. But Jamaris Patty's the meat for me. She's in, in a way I think there's in form. There's no player, no at least in the women's game that I'd rather watch bat. There's just a lot. so much not passion, but I, I think belief in that she can compete with these teams who on paper should like be wiping the floor with Sri Lanka. And I, I, I was at, um, uh, at Bristol to watch her 178 in the Women's World Cup. That was also was, against Australia. Was yeah, it? exactly. Yeah. Yeah, which yeah. is uh, still the best innings I've ever seen live. And uh, that was obviously a statistical marvel of a knock as this one was. And she, yeah, she, so she lost playing against Australia. And uh, yeah, she's just a, 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 a brilliant player and love to see her do well, essentially. So that's about all from us. I guess the last thing, one of the last things today is... Uh, Freddie, your book, where should people be buying it? Uh, Waterstones, all good bookshops, Amazon, online, hopefully. If you get a, give it a Google, I'm sure you can find it. Um, so yeah, please go we'll, out and buy it. Also be giving one away if you uh, if you take part in my crossword in the next magazine. Good <laughs> so. plug. We haven't plugged your crossword on the uh, podcast <laughs> Some, as well. Someone, <laughs> someone on Instagram said it was their favourite page of the magazine was my crossword. Oh, that's so, a bit um, of a slap in the face for the editor, isn't it? Really? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just a, 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 a compliment for what... In my opinion, in unbiased opinion, is an excellent crossword. Right. Um, okay. And uh, speaking of the magazine and uh, all things wisdom, we'd obviously, we always want to be better. We're trying to be better. So if you could please take part in our reader survey, uh, if you go to wisdom.com forward slash survey 2019. Joe, there are 48 questions to answer. Is that oh, yeah, don't people put people off, though. But they're, uh, they're very quick questions. Most of them are yes you or also no. You don't have to answer all of them. So some relate to the magazine, some relate to the website, some relate to social media, some relate to this podcast. So just answer the bits that are relevant to you. As well. I think and cricket in general, we want, yeah, we want to hear your views on, on the 100, on the World Test Championship. Uh, and then, uh, well, yeah, it helps us make all our products better. And we can use some of the stuff what you tell us to uh, to create some editorial in the next magazine as well. And also, uh, prizes up for grabs, right? Lots of prizes. Test tickets for next summer. Uh, the winning bat from next year's Wisdom Gear Test. Uh, loads of loads of lovely bits that you can win. Yeah, I might enter, Freddie. Yeah, <laughs> sure, brilliant. I'd, I'd love a new bat. For, it'd be fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, that, that that's all from us. Uh, thank you for listening. And uh, if you've enjoyed it, please subscribe and tell your friends. Podcast Network.